You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, pick one up. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one in front of the seat in front of you. And if you don't own one, take it as our gift to you. Also, in the bulletin, there's a place to make notes. There's some fill-in-the-blanks, which I'll be giving you. It's a good way to keep you actually engaged in the sermon and hopefully retain some of what we're going to talk about. But you know what? It feels like I remember last year at this time, um, Start of 2021, everyone was kind of like, yeah, we're almost through this, and they're excited and pumped, right, about this new year when we're going to be over COVID. And now it feels like, to a lot of people that I'm seeing, it's kind of like, oh, 2022. Oh, yay. I don't know what's in store. And in many ways, yeah, we have all the reason. We're exhausted. We're tired. Almost two years of this, Right? But with Christ, we have hope. Most of the world is despairing right now. But we, regardless of what comes, have a great hope. And so I want to encourage you to uh, take what Paul is going to uh, lay out to us seriously and look to uh, have God make it a part of you. Look to have it change your life. Because you don't want to be coming to the end of 2022 and be the same person that you are today. God's desire for you is to change you into the image of himself. And that means you have to go along with that. It's a dance that God leads, but you have to follow. And so I want to encourage you in that today. Open up those Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be going through verses 1 to 14. We've been going through Ephesians for the last couple of months, verse by verse, looking at this great letter that Paul had written to the Ephesians uh, who were in Greece at the time and new believers that had come out of a really messy past and yet were changing and God was doing amazing things in them. And so they had challenges, they had struggles, and yet God was working in them and in their situations. And so we've got struggles and we've got challenges, but God can work inside of our struggles and challenges and change us. And so let's go to him in prayer and let's ask him to help us. Well, Lord, many of our friends are away because they've been in contact with people who are in contact with people who have COVID and they have to isolate. And Lord, it kind of feels like we're a skeleton crew. But do we forget, Lord, that the first group of Christians... The whole church was 120 people uh, that they gathered together in an upper room hidden with the doors locked. I'm sure they felt alone. I'm sure they felt like a skeleton crew. And yet you started the greatest uh, movement, the greatest uh, thing that had ever happened to this world. You started your church through this group of people. And so I pray that we would be encouraged today uh, not to give in to the spirit of Uh, despair or hopelessness, Lord, but that we would believe that you can do something in us and through us this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In the year 33 AD, two things happened, two big things happened. One, Jesus was crucified and rose again and ascended into heaven to be with his father. And two, the Holy Spirit was sent to this earth to bring alive, to awaken this thing we call the church. This church of 120 ragamuffins, of nobodies, of misfits, of failures, that turned the Roman Empire with all of its money, with all of its technological advancements, with with its efficiency in the art of brutality, it would turn it upside down on its head. How did it do that, we might ask? How did this group of people turn the most powerful empire in the history of the world on its head? Well, they did it without drawing a sword, They did it without a political voice on their behalf. How did they do it? Well, they didn't do it because they had an inexhaustible uh, internet full of Bible commentaries that they could study uh, the scriptures, and they didn't do it because they had uh, vision and daystar that they could watch 10 hours of the, the best preachers from around the world. They did it through the power and the, through the trust and through the consistency of following after Christ, of walking the walk. And now that you might have not heard that saying, it's a, it's a North American saying, walking the walk, you might have heard it. It's a, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. You better put what comes out of your mouth into action and actually do it and live it out. And that is what they did. And the world took notice of what they did. They could not take notice of their walk. And so... I think every one of us, as we pick up the book of Acts, should be astonished at this group of people, this account of the first church. As Pastor Art Kratz says, these rude men, these fishermen, these louts who had no advantage of the kind we enjoy were able to turn cities upside down and shake the world. How did they do it? Well, Pastor Kratz, God rest your soul, they were able to walk the walk of Christ. And by representing and walking the walk of Christ, people took notice. And so I want to just look at Paul. He gives us three uh, things he encourages us to do in order to start walking that walk. And the first one is to imitate Christ, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. When I was a kid, I played fastball or hardball, as we called it back then. And you know what I thought I was going to be? A major league baseball player. Did anyone else in here think that they were going to be a professional sports, right? A hockey player, maybe. Hockey player. Anyone else think they're going to be like a basketball professional or football, right? Most kids think they're going to, I can make it. I can. All of them can't make it. That I can make it into the major leagues, right? And what do we do often when we're kids and, and we want to make it into the major leagues? We find a major leaguer, right? And we imitate them. We copy them. We try and be like them. We study them, right? And for me, I loved Roberto Alomar, the second baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays. And so I would, uh, when I was in hardball, I would take his stance, his, his special stance, and, and move my bat just like it. And when I was, I wanted to play second base, so even though they'd send me to, to center field often, where they send the worst players, 
sometimes they'd let me play second base, and so I'd get down like Roberto Alomar and, and just tip on my tiptoes like this and, and copy him. And Paul is saying, Christian, imitate Christ, copy Christ, be like him. Not in the sense that I wanted to copy Roberto Alomar so I could be famous, but copy him so we can be like him. Imitate him, Paul says, the way a dearly loved child imitates their father. And you know, kids are really good at sniffing things out, aren't they? Right? We can, we can, um, we can trick people at work. We can, we can make uh, the people in our congregation, in our church, think we're one step below sainthood. We can even pull the wool over our parents sometimes. Uh, but children will often see the real you. They'll often see who you really are behind closed doors because they watch you. They're studying you. They're, they're seeing if you're worthy of copying, of following. And often kids start to mimic their parents. And sometimes, unfortunately, kids can, can see their parents being one thing at the church and another thing at home, and the children decide or they determine that God must be like my parent who is inconsistent, who is one thing in front of one group of people and another thing in front of another group. And sometimes, unfortunately, kids determine that because of the example of their parents, they're not going to follow God. And yet, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us to imitate God in the lens of a child who sees a perfect parent, as a dearly loved child, as somebody who knows their heavenly father, who knows God, loves them dearly, and therefore is worthy of following. And we know that Jesus is the, as Colossians 1.15 tells us, he is the image of of the invisible God. So Jesus is the one we copy. He is the one we imitate, trusting and knowing that he is worthy of doing that. And so as uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, said hundreds and hundreds of years ago, boldly, essentially, that the real Christian wants to practice being Jesus, to actually think, what would Jesus do? That's where that saying came from. What would Jesus do? Right? What would he do when he's talking to his parent? What would he do when he's in this business transaction? How would he conduct him his language? How would he treat these children? Imitate Christ in all things. And it's, it's important to, to understand the culture that Paul is talking to. He's talking to uh, people living in, in a Greek city, in a Greco-Roman uh, empire. And one of the most esteemed uh, jobs that you could have was to be a master of rhetoric, an orator, a public speaker. That was one of like the pinnacles that you could be in Greek society was somebody who could really argue a point or speak well or, or, or do a play or something like that. And so the Greek teachers uh, would teach their students, okay, because there was a school for rhetoric, they would teach them the, the three uh, primaries of rhetoric. One is to understand the theory, which is why we study the Bible and, and, and read commentaries and, and sit under preaching so we can understand the theory 
and imitate the masters. They would take their students to the, uh, to the shows, to the, uh, to the Colosseum, to the parliamentary uh, proceedings, and they would listen and look, and you see how that guy argues and how that guy talks and, and how they move their hands. They would imitate, and then they'd come back and they would imitate them, and then the third was to practice, practice, practice. And so what is Paul is telling us is to imitate Christ, the master, the teacher, God. And so what actions are we to imitate him in? Well, verse 2 says it. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So if you're filling in the blanks, this is one of those. How do we imitate him? We imitate him in love. He doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. In love. And, and I need you to write this down beside that if you're taking notes or write it in your Bible. If you're writing in your Bible, uh, stick it in your head, write it on your heart, okay? I want you to hear this because I have to remind myself of this. Love, I'll say that again, love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is an action. It's not a feeling. Oh, I feel like I love you today. No, it's an action. It's something you do. And if we are only loving people when we feel like loving people, well, we're actually not loving at all according to the standard of God, which is love. Love is God. We're loving like the world loves. Jesus never fell in and out of love with us. No, Romans 5, 8 says, but while God shows us his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing lovely about us, and yet God still showed us his love in his actions. John 1, 4, verses 9 to 10 says, In this the love of God has made manifest among us, that he sent his one and only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as appropriation for our sins. So walking, imitating Christ in love is our daily actions, is our daily words, is the way we treat people, is the way we we treat God. It's everything about us. That is whether we're loving. Our love is demonstrated through our actions, not through our words necessarily, although that's a part of it, and not through, definitely not through our feelings. What's the second way we are to imitate him in sacrifice, in sacrificial love, right? They're, they're inseparable. They're the same thing, right? Love and sacrifice. If you're going to love in actions and not feelings, well, there's going to be sacrifice in that because the world says, love only those who will give you love in return. Give only if you're going to get. Love only those who deserve it, according to your standard. Forgive only those who have asked for forgiveness and humbled themselves before you. And yet that is not the, the love, the sacrificial love that Christ gives to us, is it? 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous and for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, right? Christ sacrificed himself for us, us unlovely people. 
us undeserving people, right? He gave us love sacrificially. It costs, right? And if we are to imitate God, it means we're going to have to sacrifice sometimes our pride, sacrifice being right, sacrifice waiting for the other person to love us first, and just do what Christ did for us. Love is a sacrifice. So imitate Jesus in love and sacrifice in your marriages, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your workplaces, in your church, in your interactions with people that you don't really even know that well. That is how we imitate Christ. Instead of just being, you know, well-spoken, well-dressed, trendy Christians, we are to demonstrate and imitate through action, through sacrifice. And then you know what we become when we do that? Paul says it in the the end of verse 2. We become a fragrant offering to God. When we imitate Christ in love and sacrifice, we become fragrant. Fragrant means sweet. We become a sweet-smelling person to God, an odor that is good and pleasing to God. And so that's a question for you to think about as you look back on 2021 and think about 2022 is what kind of smell... Does your life leave in the lives of people around you? What kind of smell does your life give to God? Are you a sweet smell of love and sacrifice to those around you and to God? Or are you a foul odor? Do you leave a taste in people's mouth after their interactions with you that's like, oh, man, they're hard to be around. They make you feel like that. Does God look down and say, oh, son, daughter, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you treating them like that? Why are you representing me like that? What does your life give? And I think of people, two prominent people in history, one that left a very foul odor in the, the lives of their family and one that left a, a great sweet smell. One is Franklin, Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was the 32nd president. Uh, he led the United States through World War II. He's a very well-known and esteemed president. And yet, he failed his wife. He rejected Christ, and he failed his children. He crushed his wife, actually. He made her feel like she was this Big. Roosevelt was a man who, who um, if you read his biography, would say he was sold out to work and sold out to the, to the people of the U.S., and yet he cheated on his wife regularly. So much so that he became so bold that he hired his mistress to be his personal secretary while he was the president of the United States, Miss Lucy Mercer Rutherford. So much so that, that out of his six children... Uh, He hardly ever had time for them. Pretty much his wife raised them by herself. Three of his children uh, struggled with alcoholism for most of their life. In, in, In an interview with Mrs. Roosevelt, just before she died, she said, when I think of my children's lives, I want to die. That's what he left in the lives of the people that were closest to him. Yet when I think of another man, Jonathan Edwards, one of the, the, 
the greatest preachers back in the Great Awakening. He, he preached the sermon that kind of sparked the Great Awakening, the sinners in the hands of an angry God. And yet, this man who is studied by scholars, remembered throughout the centuries, was an amazing father and an amazing husband. He had 11 children. 11 children. Can you imagine that? You think the good's got a lot going on. (laughs) 11 children. And yet, every day he made an hour for each one of his children. Like, so Monday, one child would get an hour alone with him. And yet, he led Bible devotion time at lunch or at lunch and at dinner. He always made time for his family. Every day, a different kid would spend an hour alone with him. He helped his wife. He had a great marriage. He had great relationship with his children. He left a fragrant offering to the people that loved him most, and he served his God. Which one do you want to be? Which one do I want to be? So we can memorize the Bible, we can sing in the choir, we can raise uh, ourselves to the top ranks in our workplaces, we can win, win the praises of the world, but to God and your wife and your children... And those closest to you that know you the best, we can leave a foul odor. Or we can imitate Christ in sacrificial love through action, not just through words and feelings. Then Paul tells us, if you want to walk the walk, reject sin. Verses 3 to 7, reject sin. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper of the saints. Let's stop there for a second. By, by nature, when you're imitating, okay, this is kind of like a, uh, something that is going to happen more and more naturally. As you have your eyes on Christ, as you're focused on Him, as you're walking after Him, as you're sacrificially loving, you are going to be rejecting these things that Paul is going to list, these three Sins. It's going to come more and more natural as you have your eyes on Christ. But when you take your eyes off Christ, you're more naturally going to embrace these sins instead of rejecting these. What does he talk about? Well, first, sexual immorality. That comes from the Greek word pornea. That's where we get the word porn from. And according to Pew Research, 80% of North Americans, Christians included, somewhere in the 80s, it's different... 80-something percent of men uh, will watch pornography in a semi-regular time, like throughout the year. And 30-something percent of women, that includes Christian women, view pornography. They're hooked on it in a semi-regular fashion. It, It has a hold, and that's why Paul says reject it. Reject it. It shouldn't even be mentioned among you. And, and, or in, sorry, sexual immorality is anything sexually outside of a married man-woman relationship. Anything but that, whether you view it, participate in it. And that means, that means like we're going to not be popular in culture. And you might say, oh, come on. I think God is changing with the times. There's some pastors who are saying God is changing with the times. But when they say that, they really don't understand the culture to which Paul was talking to. That God isn't all right with a man and a man and a woman with a woman or a man with multiple women. 
or a woman with multiple men, which is becoming popular in our day. No, no, the culture that he was talking to was a very sexually immoral culture. What Paul was, what Paul and Jesus were, were talking about was completely countercultural. Just read from Matthew, a few lines from Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, It was certainly true that in the ancient world, it regarded sexual immorality so light that it was not even a sin or something wrong. It was expected that a Greek man, a Roman man, would have a mistress. It was an expectation that they would. In places in Corinth, there were great temples that were staffed with hundreds of male and female prostitutes. No Roman in their right senses would forbid a young man from consenting with one of those prostitutes. This is the the culture that Paul is telling, stay away from anything outside of a married, committed, one man, one woman relationship. The culture said, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, very much like our culture is pointing and telling us to go to now. And yet, because of what was taught by Scripture, by God, it changed the moral fabric of the world, right? No longer were men just having kids with multiple women and these kids growing up without a father and ending up on the streets like they would and being sold into prostitution rings like they would be. Now families were stable because one man and one woman were together and they could be trusted and it was a safe place. And No longer were women being captured away as pieces of garbage. No, a woman could feel secure with her husband, that he would care for her and look after her. What the Bible taught changed the fabric of society. And now society is saying, we don't want that anymore, and we can see the effects on our society. And so Paul says, don't have any part of it. Then he says, impurity. That comes from the Greek word aktharisa, which means, okay, in an Old Testament um, sort of view, it means to be unclean from ritually unclean or, or when you would touch a leper, you would become unclean or you would, you would touch a corpse, you would become unclean. But in the New Testament, the same word, same meaning, it's in a moral sense. So don't become impure in a moral sense by meaning giving into, okay, as... as uh, as the concordance says, in a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious uh, living that is driven by unpure motives. So you become impure when you're driven to luxury, to pleasure, to power, that these things corrupt you. When your motives are to get more, to get much for yourself, and to get lots of power for yourself, you become corrupted, impure as it says. And then it says greed. Don't let greed become a part of you. That comes from a Greek word which means when you're lusting after greater and greater temporal things. And and things that God has said, I don't want for you. And you say, I need it. I must have it. You covet it. It's the same word that we get covet from. So Paul is saying sexual immorality impurity and greed shouldn't even be named amongst you. It's not wrong to make money. It's not wrong to have sexual relations with your, mar- with your spouse. It's not 
wrong to participate in things, but it's wrong when it becomes our motive, when it becomes our desire, greed, selfishness. I need more money for myself. I need more pleasure than, than what my spouse can give me. I need, I need, I need. I want, I want, I want. Then we're no longer following and imitating Christ. We're following the world. Then he says, verse 4, Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexual immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So don't give it attention. Don't give it uh, focus in your mind. That's your next fill in the blank. Paul is saying it's, it's not enough that you don't participate in it. Don't even have it on your mind. Because often, what are we joking about? We're joking about things, right? I, I'm guilty of this too. Crude things, God, things that God says is, is a no-no. And when we joke about it, we're actually bringing attention to it. And it, we're bringing it to our minds and we're thinking about it and making other people think about it. And Paul's saying, listen, don't even joke about it. It's serious. It's dead serious. It's so serious that Paul's saying people who are, give their lives to that, the sexual impurity and to impure life and, and to the idolaters, people who give their life to that will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. So it's as serious as hell. It's serious. So he's saying, don't even joke about it. Don't even play with it. It's not even to be amusement. Then he says, verse 6, Do not let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. Don't be deceived. We need to understand that there are always going to be people with public platforms, some of them behind pulpits, who are there to deceive you, who have not been planted there by Christ, who have been planted there by Satan. And there are some who at one time were walking with Christ, but were deceived themselves. Paul is specifically um, addressing the, the problem of Gnosticism at that time. There were teachers... There were people coming up from in the church teaching that, you know what? The spirit, the soul, and the physical body are two separate things. When you hear of the Gnostic Gospels, this, is, this is, comes out of this. And that God has saved your spirit, your soul, and therefore what you do in your body really doesn't matter. So indulge in all the things of the world, sexually, immorality, greed, all of those things, because your soul has been forgiven. And Paul is directly saying, no, 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 no. Your body and your soul are intertwined. And although you've been forgiven, now you are to abstain from those things. And there are people who have big platforms who are going to teach you and tell you and deceive you of stuff that isn't true. And, And so he goes on to say that... The third part is to walk in the light. So you got to walk. If you want to walk the walk, you got to imitate Christ. You got to reject sin. And then you got to walk in the light. Verse 8. For you were once, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
There are two masters, Satan and Christ. There are two eternal states that a person can be in, unsaved and saved. And there are two physical states that we walk around in, whether we know it or not, the darkness or the light. We all once walked in darkness. Some now walk in light. It doesn't mean that you've somehow achieved some, some supernatural ability on yourself. No, it's through, Christ, it's through faith in Christ, through submitting your life to him, that the light comes to live in you, and therefore you walk in the light of Christ. He is the light that you walk in. There are some who we would say refer to them as religious people who have a lot of religious traditions and, and they do a lot of things and they speak some stuff, but they really still walk in the darkness. They sound like the part, but they don't really live the part. They don't walk in the light. Well, how can we tell if a chicken is a chicken and not a cat? Well, a chicken lays eggs and clucks like a chicken and has feathers and a cat doesn't, right? Pretty simple concept. And, and sometimes we can think that everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian, but there really isn't. There are some people who are religious people that walk in darkness, and there are those who walk in the light. And how do we know it? Well, Paul tells us the fruit of the light, the fruit of God working in you, the fruit of God living in you, okay? And I'm not saying it's perfection, and I'm not saying uh, that it isn't a process, but the fruit of that are three things. Goodness. The light produces goodness, the fruit of the life consists of goodness. What is goodness? Well, it, it means this desire to do good. That inside of you, you will feel this desire, I want to do what is good and right. Between God and between man, I have this growing desire to find out what is the right way to be and do that and live that. That is one of the fruits of the light of God living inside of you and that you are actually walking in the light. And you can have periods, Christian, where you walk into the darkness. You're still a saved Christian, but you're walking in the darkness and you'll feel these voices and these temptations uh, pointing you and getting you to do things that aren't in the light. But you'll hear this voice inside of you telling you, no, don't go down that road. Don't do that. That's not the way you want to go. And, and the more you walk in the light, the more you'll want to do what is good according to God. Second thing is righteousness, he says. And we've talked about righteousness a lot. That means to do right between you and other human beings. You will have this desire to treat people with that sacrificial love that we talked about. And the third thing is, the light produces the fruit of truth in your life. As you walk in the light, the truth of Christ, meaning what we see in the Bible, the truth that God has given to us with a capital T, will manifest in your life. Now, I'm not talking about legalism. You'll just become some Bible thumper that will, you know, have to wear a three-piece suit and comb their hair a certain way and, and, and not that. That's not what I'm saying. And you have to perform a bunch of rules because that was the Pharisees. And those are the people that Jesus had the hardest time with, right? The people who looked good. They thought they walked in the light, but then Jesus Christ came onto the scene and the light was amplified a million times over. And all of a sudden, like, like 
rats that had been had the light cast on them. The Pharisees and Sadducees were like, ugh, get that light off of me. Their false light was shown that they actually lived in the darkness. So not like that, but you will have this desire. You will hear the truth, and it will manifest itself in you. You will start to live and desire and want the truth. That's what the promise of walking in the light is. And the promise is that those who find the truth will be set free. Freedom will come. Again, it's not right away, but consistently over time, God will set you free of the things that once held you. Yes, you'll struggle. Yes, you'll have temptation. Yes, you'll fail. But throughout your life, as you walk in the light, you'll move forward. And that's God's desire for us. Verse 10, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. You shall know the truth and it shall set you free. Well, how do we know it's true? Well, test it. Test it and see if it's pleasing to the Lord. Test it in the light. Not everything that comes down the road in your life is necessarily from God. Just like I know, not every person that walks into a church is necessarily sent by God. Some people are sent by the enemy. And some things in your life and some people in your life were sent by the darkness. And so Paul says, test the things that come along in your life. Test the opportunities. Test the words. Test the relationships and see if they fail. How do you test something? Well, you test it in the Word. First of all, if, you wanna, if you're a Christian, you want to know if something is right, go and see if there's an answer, a clear answer in God's Word. Test it against God's Word. A decision you have to make, a, a person in your life, something you want to do, test it in the Word, in the truth. Then test it with the counsel of other wise Christians. Go and seek some wise Christians who don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk themselves who are sincere, nobody's perfect, but who are sincere, test it with them. And then test it in prayer and ask God to give you peace about that decision. In verse 11, don't participate in fruitlessness, fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. The next fill in the blank is drag it into the light. Drag it into the light. That thing in your life, and I know we all have them, I I have them. Those things that want to live in the darkness in your life, those thoughts, those actions, those secret things that don't produce anything good in your life, you can think of them. Habits you have, stuff, whatever, stuff you watch, relationships. You know they're not of the light. They're no, you know it's not what God wants for you. It kind of lives in the darkness over in the corner of your mind or your heart, it doesn't produce anything good. It's fruitless. Fruitless means nothing good grows from it. Nothing, nothing godly is produced by it. What do you do? You drag it, expose it, bring it out. How do you do that? Well, you got to be honest. First with yourself, then with God, then with others. Honest with yourself. I have this problem. I have this thing I cannot overcome. Be honest with yourself. Admit it. It's the first step to AA, right? Admitting that you have a problem. Then admit it to God. Ask God for help. And then admit it to some other trusted people. Expose it. Bring it into the light. And yeah, it might mean you have to humble yourself. 
But you can think of those things. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. You know it's not the way God wants you to spend your money. Maybe it's the way you treat people in your life, your spouse or your friends. Maybe it's the way you spend your time. You know, ah, I just, this thing that I spend my time on, you know, it's not bad in and of itself, but it has a hold on me. It, it, it has this unhealthy hold on me. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, 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 it's what you say with your mouth. Ah, my mouth, my tongue, it seems to have, it produces nothing good. It lives in the darkness. Whatever it is, if it's fruitless, drag it into the light and expose it. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Next thing is, then it will be cleansed. Cleansed. We know that light, the sun, has healing powers, doesn't it? The sun is good for you. It's good to be. That's why we feel like garbage in January, right? COVID aside, we generally, if we're going to get depressed, it's probably January and February, right? Because we're not in the light, right? In the light of Christ, when we drag it, when we drag that thing into the, out of the darkness, into the light, it will cleanse us. The light of Christ will cleanse us from these things. I, I, I was reading... Um, testimony of this guy. He's just a nobody. His name's Ed. But he wrote this. He was a former alcoholic, and he struggled with alcoholism, and then Christ set him free. And he wrote this poem. I'll just read a few verses. It's, it's wonderful how Christ has cleansed him when he dragged it into the light. The blood of Christ makes me whole, softly sanitizes my sinful soul. The blood of Jesus sets me free. He enables me to live in victory. By the blood of Jesus, I find here an inner sweet sanctity of mind, serenity of mind. The blood of Jesus cleanses me. I am living in wondrous victory. The blood, the blood, it sets my heart aflame. The passions of my heart, God in love tames. Through his shed blood, I am a new man. In the boldness boldness of his love, I now stand. To become like Christ, we have to imitate Christ. We have to reject sin, and we have to walk in the light. And then he closes with this saying, Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Where this came from, we don't exactly know. It was most likely a old hymn. They think maybe it was something that was recited when people were baptized in the early church. Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christians, how we need to get up. The church in Canada has been sleeping. It's been in this sort of haze for decades, we've been sleeping while the society and culture around us deteriorates and falls apart. We've been asleep. Get up. Rise up. Come alive in Christ. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Keep your eyes focused on Christ in 2022 and off of the world. Stop trying to imitate all the celebrities of the world and all the the people that the world esteems. Keep your eyes on Christ. 
and he will shine on you. Let's pray. I'm going to invite Dustin to come up and lead us in communion after this. Lord, I pray you would help us, Lord. These things sound so wonderful and good. I so want to imitate you in my life. And yet I still find myself with my eyes falling on the world so often. And when I see the world, I'm often more tempted to embrace sin and selfishness. God, would you help us all to keep our eyes focused on you? Lord, would you help us, those that might be walking in the darkness? They followed Christ, but now they find themselves in a place of darkness. So Lord, I pray for those who have always walked in the darkness, that they look back on their life and they realize, yeah, I've always just gone through the motions. Lord, would you give them life? Would they call out to you? Would you save them, Lord? Salvation is so easy. You make it so easy. Just call out on you. Plead for mercy. Admit we're sinners and give our lives to you. And yet it's so hard for us to do, Lord. We so want to hold on to it. We so want to believe just a little bit longer and we can do it on our own. But it's a lie. Lord, thank you so much for the direction. I just pray for us as a congregation that we would move forward. In Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.